Good morning, I'm Brandon Barrett, lead pastor here at Grace Covenant. And if you're here visiting, again, just want to welcome you. We're glad that you're with us this morning. And you find us uh, right near the end of a series on the first half of Mark. We've been going through there ever since January. And this morning we're in Mark chapter 8. So if you'd like to turn there, if you happen to be using one of our uh, pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 843 of that Bible. We'll be reading verses 1 through 21 of chapter 8. This whole semester we've been talking about Jesus as Mark presents him to us. Jesus the, the King. Jesus the King. And talking week in and week out about what are the implications of the fact that Jesus really is the King that has come, who has come to us. And so we're going to see yet another dimension of that as we look at our passage this morning. First, let's pray and then we'll dive in. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for the gift and privilege it is to come together this morning to worship you sing our praises to you, to have the freedom to come and confess our sins and hear your words of assurance. Now we come together, Father, as we turn to your word. Would you use it? Would you speak to us through scriptures? Because this, this is your word to us. Would you give us hearts that are receptive? By your spirit, would you open our eyes and open our, hear, our ears that we might not be deaf, that we might not be blind to what you have for us here. Lord, we come and ask this in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen. Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 21. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called the disciples to him and he said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed the people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. He directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. He took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. They had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. They took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got up, uh, he got into the boat with his disciples and went into the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit. And he said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, and he got into the boat again went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you see, and having ears do you not hear? Do you not remember, when I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. Then he said to them, Do you not yet understand? This is the word of the Lord, and it's given to us for our good and for His glory. So we turn to it this morning. 
Okay, we have three episodes here with interactions with Jesus all about knowing and trusting him, the king, as we're going to see this morning, the king who provides. That's what we see in this passage. Um, And as we look at this king who provides, we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at the character of this king who provides for us. We're going to look at the opposition to the king who provides and the freedom that we can find in this king's provision for us. So the character of the king, the opposition, and the freedom. Uh, First, the character of the king who provides. Look first with me at verses 1 through 10. Okay, here is the scene. Jesus is ministering to these people, and, and they've been with him uh, for three days out, out in the desert. Now, for some of you, having grown up in different kinds of churches, different kinds of theological backgrounds, maybe for you, this three days, this was a revival service, okay? Going on for three days out in the desert. There were banners and everything there with Jesus. Now, if, like me, you grew up in, as a Presbyterian, then they went to a three-day conference with Jesus. Much more subdued and serious, right? Okay, either way, Jesus has been ministering to these people for these three days. And they, they're, they're hungry because they've come with provision, but they've run out. And even though they've run out of food, that they haven't left yet because there is something about Jesus that they are hungry for. He is with them, ministering to them, and they don't want to leave. And Jesus finally says, look, we have got to feed these people. They've, they have to go home, but they're going to they're gonna collapse on the way if we don't take care of them. Jesus sees their need, and then he moves to meet it. He, he feeds them, gives them dinner, sends them on their way. First thing we see here in, in this scene is something of the character of this king who provides. And the very first thing that we see here, and one of the most fundamental and important things in this whole passage, is that the king who provides for them here is compassionate. He's compassionate. Now, that word just, just kind of rolls off our tongues and... and sounds a little flat maybe, but it's, it's in three dimensions here um, in this passage. And in the Greek, you see Jesus, he turns to his disciples and he says, look, it's been three days and I have compassion on the crowds. The, the word here in, in Greek has to do with um, feeling something deep down in, in your gut. There's, there's just, it, it, it reaches out and grabs you and just moves you at the deepest level. And you know what that's like sometimes when, when, when you feel an, an emotion or something that's not just sort of this quickly passing thing, but it just grabs you and drives you. It says uh, that Jesus, when he looks around, he doesn't simply make an intellectual assessment. You know, guys, it's been three days. Surely these people must be hungry. Maybe we should provide something for them. Instead, he looks out and he has this deep visceral reaction for them. It's not academic for Jesus. He cares about what's going on for them, with them. And it is a compassion that moves him to action. Now, maybe you've been in the presence of people who are in need of food or of something else. And uh, maybe you have or have not kind of had this reaction of compassion. I can think of situations myself. Maybe you've had this one where, where you pull up to the stoplight and there's somebody there in, a median, in the median with a sign saying, I'm, I'm, I'm homeless and I, I need food. And, and you're there, and, and you have a, f- a few minutes of opportunity. And, and maybe you do something. I've, I've done something before. Or maybe you just fervently pray, green light, Lord, green light. Right? And so, you know, I, I would have done something. The light turned green. I couldn't stop traffic. I had to, I had to go. Right? Or maybe uh, many of us will remember this. Uh, you, you remember when the TV commercials would come on, and there's Sally Struthers. And she's showing pictures of starving orphans. And what are you going to do? And there's this reaction of, oh, no. 
turn the channel, right? Um, because sometimes we're confronted with needs and, and we know what it's like to respond in compassion. Other times we know what it's like to be confronted by needs and to turn away. And what do we see here? Jesus, who's concerned for them, grabs him at the very core of his being. And maybe you've found in those situations, as I have, that we can overrule our guilt. When we stop at the light, when we see the TV and we feel bad, we can find a way to distract ourselves. Jesus is moved here, not by a sense of guilt, but by a heart of compassion to reach out to these people. And here's part of the point for us, and we need to get this. God cares about our needs. He cares so much that he sends Jesus, God in the flesh, to come and care about our needs, even needs like this, a meal. He cares, I mean, he really cares that they're hungry. And that they need him to come provide for them in the most tangible and basic of ways. We have a king who comes and who is compassionate. He is moved by his compassion on behalf of his people. But there's got to be something more than just Jesus' compassion if these are people are going to be fed, right? So that he's not just like us when Sally Struthers comes on the TV and we think, all those starving people, if only there was something that I were able to do, like right now, something substantial for them. In other words, it's not simply for Jesus, just these uh, deep emotions and this thought of if only. Instead, for him, it is this deep compassion that leads immediately into action. Why? Because not only does he have a heart to care for them, he has the power to do exactly what he wants for them. It's not just nice feelings for Jesus. He knows that he has the resources in his bag to come and meet those needs. You see, our Savior comes not simply with this deep compassion for us, though he has certainly got that, but with the power to actually do something about it. Jesus looks out and he says, I have compassion on them. He looks at his disciples and says, we're going to give them something to eat. We are going to feed them. We are going to step in and meet this need for them. He is, he is both compassionate and powerful. You see how desperately we need both those things. If Jesus were simply a well-meaning Savior for us without the power to come and reach us in our deepest needs, then we would merely have the kind feelings of God, but not a power that comes in and really changes us. God, we're simply powerful if he simply had the power to do whatever he wants, but did not have the care and the compassion to come and use that power for our good, then we'd simply be lost at the hands of every whim of a powerful but God who was not good and wasn't inclined for us. We need both. Not only that, we need that power, that compassion to come after us. To come after us. And that's part of what's going on here. That we see Jesus, not only his compassion, that he's compassionate and powerful, but that he is expansive. That his desire to come and bring this kind of healing and power reaches wide. Okay, if you've uh, been tracking with Mark, though we, though we didn't actually look at this in a sermon a few weeks ago, in chapter 6, Jesus sits down 5,000 people and he feeds them a meal. And then just a couple chapters later, we've got 4,000 people and he's feeding them a meal. Now, Jesus healed, for example... No doubt, many people who are deaf and many people who are blind, but we don't get story after story about that in the course of a single gospel. But here we've got these two feedings, and it's led a lot of critical scholars to conclude this. Somewhere along the way, before Mark wrote this down, the tradition kind of developed two different sets of details about it, and, and Mark is recording what was actually one incident 
as two different incidents. I mean, come on. What are the chances that Jesus really did the same miracle twice? But if you look at Mark, for him, it's very clear that he saw these as two distinct uh, situations, two distinct uh, feedings. In fact, I mean, we, we see it on Jesus' lips and when he breaks it down for his disciples. Remember when we fed 5,000? Remember when we fed 4,000? Two different things are going on here. And so why does Mark tell us about that? Well, I think here's why. When he came, when Jesus came and fed the 5,000, he came to a uh, primarily, if not exclusively, Jewish audience. He came to God's chosen people of Israel. As an Israelite, he came and he feeds them and shows them this incredible picture of God's provision for them. And now, when he comes and feeds the 4,000, he is in a predominantly Gentile region. And so when he comes and feeds these 4,000 people, these people are entirely, or at least predominantly, they are Gentiles. They're the people on the outside. And Jesus does this to care for them too. And Mark tells us about it so that we will know that Jesus did not simply come for the people who were on the inside. For the people who had the right heritage, for the people who had the right bloodline, for the people who had the right religious convictions and polished exterior. He said, I came for all people. For those on the outside, we see that Jesus came and part of what he does, he brings this compassion and this power. He comes and brings it expansively for the world. And when Mark's disciples come and hear Jesus say this and watch him do this, they are seeing a picture of what Jesus uh, came to do and what God promised to do when he first came to Abraham. And he said, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless your descendants and you will be a blessing to all nations, to the Gentiles, to the whole world. And here we see a picture of that coming true, God coming in the person of Jesus and blessing the whole world. And do you hear what that means? It means Jesus' compassion and his power are for you and for me. He came to bring this kind of power into our lives, not just to a Jewish audience, not just 2,000 years ago, and not just on the other side of the world. He came to bring it to us. This expansive promise for the world coming true, just as Peter stood up in Acts chapter 2 and said this to the crowd, he said, Repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you, for your children, and for all who, were far, who are far off even to the ends of the world, even to Williamsburg, everyone for whom the Lord our God calls to himself. If that is true, that means that he is compassionate enough, he's powerful enough, he's expansive enough to care for you and care for me. You see, when we see Jesus feeding the crowd here, we have this picture, this little window into the beauty of the gospel that is for us. A Savior who came to meet us in our very deepest needs, who comes and meets this very physical need, but, it's, but it is also a picture of the fact that He comes to meet our every need. This Jesus who feeds a crowd is the same Jesus who came and healed those who were sick, who came and preached to those who needed to hear hope. He is the one who came and preached repentance and faith. He's the one who came and cast out demons. This Jesus who, come and get, who comes and gives physical bread to hungry people, is the same one who calls himself living bread and has broken himself, that we might be fed in a much deeper way, that we might know not only this physical provision, but a healing and a provision and a forgiveness that goes down to the very core of our beings. Jesus himself, the bread broken for us, that we might be fed 
restored, forgiven, brought back into relationship with God. That's what we see right here. He comes and does this for us, and we see this picture of it in the feeding of these 4,000. We see the character of the king, that he is compassionate, that he's powerful, that his love is expansive. But not everybody buys it, right? The crowd does, and they go away. And what, what comes next? We, we see yet one more interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees, the, the religious professionals of his day. We see this in verses 11 through 13. They come and they speak to Jesus. They come not simply to have this kind of abstract debate or discussion about, you, you know, Jesus, we, we'd, love to, we'd love to put our faith in you, but truly it would be really helpful if you could just give us some evidence of who you are, maybe, a, maybe some sort of sign so that we can trust who you say that you are. What does it say? It says they come and argue with them. They dispute with them. These Pharisees come and they challenge Jesus. You could not possibly be who you are. And if you were, give us a sign. Give us a sign. Where's God's sign that would show us that you really are the Messiah? Where's God's sign that would show us that you really have the power of God, that you can really come and speak into our lives? I mean, you never mind the fact that you fed 5,000 people. Never mind the fact that you fed 4,000 people. Never mind the fact that you're casting out demons, that you're healing, and that you're preaching about the goodness and kingdom of God. No, no matter that you're calling the people back to repentance and faith in God. I mean, all that aside, Jesus, give us a sign that we might know who you are. What do we see? I mean, we laugh, and, and, and it does, in one sense, as we read it, we just see it put that baldly, but we see resistant hearts. Hearts that are resistant to the call of Jesus in his proclamation about who he is. Jesus hears this, and you see one more glimpse into his heart and his emotions as he says, what does it say when he, when he hears their opposition? It says he groans in his spirit right down to his toes. Unbelief. The unbelief. You see, because he knows that the Pharisees, in fact, have all the evidence they could possibly need to make up their mind. And he knows that no sign could possibly sway them if they have not been swayed already. And you think about it as we look back over the book of Mark, all the people who have turned wholeheartedly to Jesus with so much less evidence than these people have before them now, hearts and lives being transformed and changed by their encounter with Jesus and the Pharisees standing back and saying, we're going to need more than this from you. What about for you? Maybe you two sit on the outside like that and think, Jesus, okay, I've, I've seen this. I'm reading about this. I know people who are Christians. People in my family are Christians. I see lives around me being changed, but I, I, I need more than this. Let me just ask this. What more do you need? What more do you need? And would it really be the decisive information that you think you so desperately need? If I just saw God show up in, with this kind of power, then I'd believe. Really? Really? I don't have enough information yet. Really? Or is it maybe that like the people in this passage, your hearts are being hard and that you can see the truth out there, but you're unwilling to grasp it. And you know that although all your answers are not, all all your questions have not been answered, that you've got a clear picture of who Jesus actually says that he is, that you're not merely riding on the fence. You have all that you need to decide whether or not you are going to put your faith in him or whether or not you can turn around and walk the other way. Is it possible that really it's all there sitting in your lap right now? 
But you see, in this passage, Jesus doesn't only find opposition from the people on the outside. Because Jesus comes to warn those that might have hard hearts and might turn from him on the inside as well. Because right after this interaction with the Pharisees, he he leaves in the boat with the disciples and he turns to them and he says to them, you, the people who are closest to me, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. Okay, what's he talking about? Leaven, it, it, it's yeast. He's talking to them uh, and, and he says, beware the, the yeast of the Pharisees, these people that we have just interacted with. Um, if you're like me, you don't some of you bake. I don't. Yeast, right? You know, you, you know if you do, you, you know how it works, right? You take just a little bit and you activate it and you, you, you knead it through the, the whole loaf. And it transforms everything. Now, it wasn't yeast itself that worried them. I mean, when, when, when they sat down and ate bread, they ate normal bread except at, uh, you know, except at festivals. They ate real bread that had yeast in it. But throughout Scripture and often in the ancient world, the, the picture of yeast itself was, it was a very negative picture. It was one of something that comes in and invades or corrupts. So when he says to them, beware the, the leaven of the Pharisees, he's saying there is something that, that you can get that is like them, that could need its way, that could that could permeate every aspect of you and corrupt you even from the inside out. He comes to warn those who are closest to him. And in the midst of this, they say, is he mad because we didn't bring the bread? Okay, now, again, if you've been tracking with Mark, this is not the first time that Jesus comes and brings them this sort of metaphorical teaching using these pictures from the world around them, and they totally get lost. They totally, Jesus, you know, you're, you're coming down, you're following somebody through the city and you don't have directions and you don't see him turn and you just keep on going straight. Like that's what happened. Jesus turned back there and they don't know what happened. Jesus, is he talking, is he talking about the bread? And you see what happens here. He is, notice what Jesus is trying to do. He's trying to teach them something, but they can't listen. It's like some of you are much better than I am, I'm sure, at, at multitasking uh, input. You know, you can, you can be talking on the phone, you can email, and you can watch TV all at the same time. I can do maybe one of those at a time. Or if you're like me, you know what it's like when you're watching TV maybe and somebody calls on the phone and you, you try to speak to them and watch TV at the same time, right? Oh, Mom, that, I'm so sorry to hear that. Um, you know, and, 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 you, and you miss it. Why? Because there's something that's competing for your attention that is louder than the voice on the phone, right? And Jesus is saying, this is what is going on with the the disciples right here. He is trying to teach them something, and the TV is on in the background. And what is the channel that is playing? We are hungry. Are our needs going to be met too? Jesus, here, here we are without bread. Okay, you're trying to tell us something, but are you talking about bread? Are you upset that we didn't bring food? And when, Jesus, is dinner going to happen, Right? They are in incredible danger of absolutely missing what Jesus has for them because they don't trust that Jesus is going to provide for them. Did you see that? That's what's going on with them. They're distracted by bread because bread is what they need and they are hungry. Jesus, okay, what, what, what were you saying? Where's our next meal? And what we see here, I think, is an invitation 
to a certain kind of freedom that we as followers of Jesus are invited into when we begin to trust the King's provision in our own lives. When we begin to trust that He is really going to meet us in our deepest needs. Jesus turns to them and He says, Why are you talking about bread? Now, th- until I had the, the gift of being able to study this passage this week, I've never understood this. I mean, it's one of those where Jesus is like, what are you talking? What are you talking about? What are we? Okay, the twelve loaves. How many? Or excuse, excuse me, the, the five thousand people. How many loaves? How many baskets did you get? Twelve. Four thousand people. How many baskets did you get? Seven. Don't you get it? No. We, we don't. Well, here, here I think is what what is going on. There's some that look at this and say and, and think that maybe there's some symbolic uh, meaning that's going on in the numbers. For example, you know, Jesus comes and feeds a crowd of Israelites and he collects 12 baskets full left over. Well, there, you know, it, it may well have something to do with representing the 12 tribes of Israel. This provision is for all of God's people. It, you know, it might have something to do with their 12 disciples. He might have been teaching them a lesson right there. Look, you fed all these people and look, now you each have a basket to eat. I'm providing for you too. He goes and feeds the 4,000, these Gentiles, and he collects seven uh, baskets. There's some that think that seven, and, and, and by extension, the number 70 in Scripture, sometimes represent Gentiles. Okay, it's possible that there's some of that symbolism in the background, way in the background, but that's not the kind of stuff that Mark really uh, spends much time on in his gospel. I think the truth is really just something much more basic than that. And it goes something like this. Don't you see... Look, I fed 5,000 people. How much was left over? 12 baskets. I fed 4,000 people. How much was left over? Seven baskets. We fed thousands of people and we had stuff left over. And you're telling me you're worried about dinner? Really? Really? Here I am trying to teach you and don't you see? Haven't I provided for you in the past? Am I going to let you down now? Here we are in the boat with one loaf of bread. It's not enough to go around. Are you worried about what you're going to get to eat tonight? You know, those of you who are much more uh, savvy investors than I know that um, if you invest, if you read a, a prospectus on a stock or something, you, you, somewhere in there there's a warning that goes something like this. You know, past performance is no guarantee of future success. That's not the way it works in the kingdom. See, Jesus says, look, Have I ever let you down? Don't you know that I'm compassionate for you? Don't you know that I'm powerful for you? Don't you know that my love and care have come into your life? Have I ever let you down? And will I now? No. I have proven myself faithful to you time and time again. And he says this not to throw it back in their face, but to say, look, you can rest. I have you. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to meet your needs in the present and the future just as I already have for you in the past. See, Jesus has us in his hand, even now, caring for us. It's exactly what he tried to tell us in the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather in barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not a more value than they are? 
And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither spin nor toil. And yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not clothed as one of these. But if God so clothes the grasses of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? But the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Jesus to the disciples, why are you worrying about the bread? And to us, why are you, why am I spending so much energy and so much time and so much anxiety worrying about our bread as well? Why are you worrying about your daily provision? Why are you letting the cares, the worries of your life take center stage? And why are you sidelining what God is doing in and around you? Why are you letting your health struggles maybe speak the loudest, to be the most insistent voice in your life right now? Why are you letting your fears for your children drive you to mindless distraction, to faithless distraction, to desperation? Do our needs matter? Yes. Jesus came and fed the 4,000 because they were hungry. Our needs matter to him. He's not telling us, you know, just quit worrying about, uh, you know, physical things so that you can concentrate on the real things, you know, the ethereal, spiritual things. Don't worry about the stuff. He's not saying that. He's saying, no, stop believing that you are, in fact, an orphan in this world, that you have no one who has your back, that you have no one caring for you, that there is no one out there except yourself and your ability to provide for yourself. Stop believing that God is your boss or your taskmaster or some sort of impersonal force that stands far off. He is your Father. He has you. He will provide for you. It is God's provision, not your anxiety, that will meet all of your needs. That's what He's telling His disciples. It's what He's telling us. And you see, it is an invitation to be free. To be free to really pay attention to what God is really doing in your life. It's a freedom to really be able to hear what He has to say to us. As we trust Him to care for us, it is like reaching out and turning the volume down on the TV set so that we can hear the voice that we should be attending to most closely. It's not that those things don't matter, but you are loved. You are cared for. And God is up to something in your life. Jesus wanted to turn down the volume for the disciples so that they could hear him teach them and speak these words to them. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees and, and, and of Herod. Remember the Pharisees, the people who don't trust me, who are always demanding to know who I am, who don't think that I can provide for them, who don't have faith in me? Beware. Don't be like that. Why are we talking about bread? I've got you. Don't you hear me? I've got you. 
frees us to follow Jesus without fear. If we know that he has us, then we can follow him without distraction as well. We can turn off the TV set and give ourselves to what God is doing in and around us. It frees us to listen to what he has to say. It frees us to learn. It frees us to look at the events and situations of our life and think this. God is at work. I know that's true. He didn't have to prove it to me again. That's always true. What's he doing? What's he got for me here? What doors is he opening for me? What doors is he closing that he might lead me closer to him? The freedom to know that he has us, that he's protecting us, that he's caring for us. It frees us another way. It frees us to say no to sin of any kind. Sexual sin. I'm not going to go drink at that water fountain because it is going to pollute me. I'm going to trust that he is going to provide everything that I need and I won't try to go grasp it for myself in ways that he has left out of bounds for me. Frees us uh, from saying no to our sin of greed and stinginess. We can give, we can give freely of our time and of our money and of everything that we have for those in need around us because we can trust that God has us. He's going to provide for our needs and so we can be liberal and open-handed with all that we have, just like Jesus was. Frees us that we can go where he leads us, wherever that might be. Frees us from our anxiety. Frees us now to serve and to love others. We don't have to take care of ourselves because he is watching us. We can serve and love. Frees you in the middle of your marriage not to always be asking this question, how are my needs getting met today? You know, is is my spouse doing their half of the list? Are my kids being good and obedient and cooperative so that my life goes more smoothly? We can stop trying to cover ourselves because God has us, and we can step into ministering to those closest to us, loving our wives, loving our husbands, loving our kids, without demanding it back from them. Because we have someone covering our back. Not looking to our spouses, our children, our friends, our jobs, our money. To fill a need in us, a hole in us, that only God can fill. My backyard. Last summer I went out and there was a hole in the yard. So I dumped some dirt on it. I came back a couple days later and there was a hole in my yard. And there was a break in our little drain pipe that goes out from our gutters through our yard. So every time I put some dirt on there, it just got sucked right back down again. Until I fixed the pipe, it all just kept going on down. And every time we do exactly that, when we look to our spouse, we look to our friend, when we look to our stuff to fill up our need for God, it is just dirt down the tube. See, there is something in us that must be healed, that we we might look to God, the one who can fill us and meet us with what we most deeply need. Our God who has us, who provides for us, who is compassionate, who is powerful, who reaches out his arms even to us. So he fed the 4,000. And he comes and offers to feed us, even today. May we look to him. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would meet our needs and we come in confidence, just as we pray in the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. It is exactly this, putting our needs into your hands and trusting you to provide so that we can go live faithful lives, attending to everything you put on our plate for the day, but not driven by anxiety and fear because you are the one who has us, God. 
Would you give us grace to believe that, to know that more deeply, to hear your voice of compassion speaking to us and speaking to the world around us, to hear your and see your power at work in us and in the world around us. Lord, you have given us the gift of provision of every kind, and most fundamentally and most deeply, you have given us in Jesus the gift of life in you, reconciliation to you, forgiveness of our sins, lives put back together again in Christ. So may we live out of that reality more and more. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.